I am a political prisoner because I am a casualty of a perennial war that is being fought between the oppressed Irish people and an alien, unwanted regime that refuses to withdraw from our land. Bobby Sands, who was serving a 14-year prison term on a weapons possession charge, had been demanding special status as a political prisoner. A number of other Irish Republican Army members have joined Sands in his protest and are also well into a hunger strike. This was drama at the absolute rawest edge that it could possibly be. You couldn't ask for a more hostile environment. Bobby Sands is putting on a performance for the world uh, for his cause. That is the cause that has murdered people. We are not prepared to give in to blackmail in the form of a hunger strike or of any other form of pressure. I declare that Bobby Sands has been duly elected to serve as a member for the third constituency. Sands was trying to be the author of his own destiny. It is not those who can inflict the most, but those who can suffer the most who will win. Now as I write, my thoughts return to the days of my youth. They will not criminalize us, rob us of our true identity. I, I saw in this man more determination than I've ever seen in any person before. I'm standing on the threshold of another trembling world. May God have mercy on my soul. And that was 66 Days Bobby Sands' trailer played there. As everyone is aware, today is the 41st anniversary of the beginning of the hunger strikes in Longkesh. I'm glad to introduce our guest speaker today, Kiran McDavi. Kiran, thanks very much for coming along. Thanks for the invitation. Could you just tell us maybe a bit of your early life? You grew up in Belfast in the 60s and 70s, is that correct? Yeah, I don't like to admit it too much, but I was born in the 50s. Um, <laughs> I, I, I was doing the car insurance today. And uh, it's a very depressing moment, you know, when you have the date of birth and, you know, the drop down list comes and you just keep going down, 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 the 1950s. But uh, yeah, born in 1959, in August 1959, which, which means I had my 10th birthday in August 1969 as a uh, refugee in Dublin. Um, as part of what was at the time the largest movement of a civilian population in Western Europe since the Second World War. And uh, I remember myself and my brother, um, who was three years younger than me, my two sisters, no, one of my sisters, one sister was in the Gweltat. Um, we, we, we were down with some cousins and we stayed with these people up near the airport in Dublin. And uh, strangely enough, the brother of the chap who we were staying with was Devilers driver. And oh, um, we actually got a spin round Dublin <laughs> in the presidential limousine. <laughs> um, I, just, I don't know what it was, somewhere, I, some, I saw something once and it gave me a flashback to it. But, we, you know, we were down there and 
just at the time it seemed like a holiday and one of the, I suppose one of our biggest questions was like we'd hoped that the, the thing would go on before into September so we'd miss a bit of school mm. and we weren't so aware of the fact that we were down as refugees and when we were driving down I remember the roads were full of cars with kids and the adults were talking about there's refugees there's refugees and I remember thinking god it must be awful it must be awful to be one of those refugees yeah. um without really realising that was us. But in the back of your head, you know, you knew what was going on at home. You knew it. You know, you knew that Belfast was being attacked, or that the districts were being attacked. You know, you knew Bombay Street was burnt. And you knew that, you know, in your head, you, you, you didn't know what you were going to be going home to. You didn't know, would, would you still have a Belfast to go back to? Would you still, you know, there was that fear there. The people in Dublin who we were with have to say, um, they went. They really they brought us to places, and as I said we got a we got a spilling devil out of his car. Even um, I say to my brother, oh, I, I was, he doesn't remember it as well as me, and I was telling devil I come down and rubbed his head, and uh, <laughs> he denies it. Like but I actually think it did happen. I have this notion of they all got, sir. Here's the kids from Belfast, but it was it it was a shock to your system because then you see, when when you'd left Belfast. It was still a fairly normal place, you know, like the civil rights had been going on. But you arrived back to a city that, that had a soldier with a gun on every corner. Yeah. I was going to say that. Do you think, did, you know, what we call um, the troubles, or did, did, did the politics of the time, did that define your childhood? Or did you have, I suppose, an ordinary childhood in other senses, you know? You did, up, up, up until that moment. Um, like, we actually grew up, People say, oh, you know, about whether you know Protestants or not. We grew up amongst Protestants, so we did. You know, we grew up in the Protestant area. We, wanna, we were one of 10 Catholic families in a, in a housing estate of 300. And it was we, we, we lived a fairly normal existence up until that point. But then I remember you came back and, you know, I, I was actually talking to a group of students about this recently. Um, you know, you came back then, I was 10, and... You, you came back to a place that was tank, the tanks. You know, the, the song goes, armoured cars and tanks and guns. That's exactly what it was. And there, there, were, there, was, there was, in that time, from 10, I went to secondary school in 1971. And there was a series of very critical incidents that happened along that path then, that, that you had the false curfew then in 1970. You had the Battle of the Short Strand. Um, in June 1970, which was the first time that the provisional IRA made themselves known. They defended the short strand. Yeah. Um, and very successfully, they did lose a couple of guys. And um, you had that false curfew. Then you had the introduction of internment, the Ballymurphy massacre. And then you had, in February 72, at this stage, I was in my first year in secondary school in Andersonstown. You had Bloody Sunday. And the way I put it to the students, I was talking, there were students from overseas and there were history students. And every time you talk about this, you kind of, you, 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 see, you, you, see, you see a good little bit of added understanding to it, you know? But, and it's the importance of Bloody Sunday, that that was the point of no return. Up until Bloody Sunday, if the Irish government had have, had, had, had taken notice, had taken and said, no, this has to be turned around, this can't, this can't be, 
and it's gone to the American government, British government, friendly European governments. There was no EC at the time. Would you yeah. be right in saying it was the point of no return? No, that's what I'm saying. And from that moment, when Bloody Sunday happened, there was no going back. Because mm -hmm. Bloody Sunday happened in 10 minutes. And it was a civil rights march. It wasn't, an, it wasn't a, a Republican march. It wasn't a Sinn Féin march. There really was no provisional Republican movement in Derry prior to Bloody Sunday, really. And that was the point when, when people said, what's the point? There's no point in doing these civil rights marches. This is, we're just going to be attacked. We're just going to be shot off the road, beaten off the road. And there was no going back. And I, I, I watched the Bolly Murphy. You see, when you're that age, five years is a long, long time. It seems like 50 years. But I remember watching the Bolly Murphy programme mm -hmm. and counting the years on and thinking to myself, yeah, that, that, and there was that, and that was Bloody Sunday then. Five years after that, I was in Hitchblocks. And it was around the time of internments. Well, you had internment, internment ended then. But you know, when, when, when you looked at those, and, you, and it seemed like an awful long time back then, but five years later, I was in the blocks. That's the length of time. Most we have degree programs here that are that 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 are that long. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that was the point of no return. And people have so much to say about all of this here, about many things, about the struggle in the north and about the conflict in the north, whatever way you want to put it. But that was the reality of it. Mm -hmm. And and with Bloody Sunday, there was no going back. Yeah. There was just that was it because it but Bloody Sunday. What what the what the British said to us on Bloody Sunday was, no. This just says no. This is you, you can you can march up those roads till you're up to your knees, and at the minute you start being effective, we're going to shoot you. We're going to blow you off the road, and which is what they did. So we're going to segue into some music there now. So next up, Dark Doom by Horselips. Thank you. 
Dark Doom by Horse Lips on Radio Publica. We are joined today by Kiran McDavi, our special guest. So the next question I'll ask, Kiran, what was life like in the H-Block? So you entered in 1977, is that right? 1977, yeah. And your first impressions? And now, while you were on remand in the Crumlin Road Jail, you had your clothes. You, you didn't. Um, it was after being sentenced, and I was on my own. So you were sentenced, and then shipped up to the blocks the next day and um so was now I remember I was eighteen at this time. Um and a young eighteen. I wasn't, you know, I'd still a long way to go to for it. It's very uh, young thing. When you think about it like that, you it know is, that's well, younger I than I am now. I look yeah, 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 yeah. Um I had an awful moment. I have two sons when each of them turned eighteen I had an awful moment. I looked at them and I thought, my God, is that what I looked like? You know, is that what I was? But you, you, you went through and, and it, you, nobody knew what was going on. Nobody told you, okay, where's the moment coming when they take your clothes? When does this, how does that happen? Do they jump you? Do they rip them off you? Do And so the whole time you were walking through the place waiting for this. And uh, it was actually just non-eventful, you know. We got to the, the other, there was other other prisoners along with me, but they were wearing a uniform and they went their ways. And I was going off and I was thinking, all I just put it into my head, at some stage tonight, you'll be sitting in a cell with some of the, with the rest of the guys. At this stage, I think there's, there was, there was, I would say, this was just before the Nawash protest started. We would have had maybe 250 guys on the protest at this stage. Um, plus, of course, as well, we had the women in Armagh who, while they had their clothes, they were on, they were on the no work protest, they were on the protest as well. Um, and. I took the clothes off and you're standing there thinking, feeling a bit exposed here. And the screw looked at me and he just says, uh, he says, he says, well, he says, put the towel around you. He says, put the towel around you. And I thought, right. And I remember going up and lunchtime, everybody would have been asleep and it was just around lunchtime. And I entered this, this wing and um, the cell was 23. I remember going in and there was deadly silence in the place because everybody was dosing, everybody was having a doze at lunchtime. And uh, your man opened the door and this guy was standing, all hair and beard, where it her, this guy from Derry called O'Hagan. And he came walking up and went past me. And I thought he was coming up to say, hello, welcome. And he walked right past me. And I thought, what's he doing? But he stuck his head to the door and shouted up, we have a new man here. And the place erupted. We used to use the pots for pissing in to bang the doors to celebrate stuff. And the next thing, this place just erupted. <laughs> just, I was, and I was starting going, what have I done here? Like, you know, but it was a way to welcome you. You know, and it was a, and when somebody new came on, it was a tremendous celebration because it was a victory. 
that we got somebody new on the on the protest, and um, and and the noise was horrendous, like you know. Um, but and you felt, you know, here I am. I'm with my comrades. I've made it, you know, through whatever, whatever. And fortunately, in in my case, other people didn't have it so easy. Depending on the screws who you were dealing with, someone would have been running gauntlets and that. But it was fairly easy, you know. Well, easy, you know, relatively speaking. And it must have been, you know, you, you were locked in yourselves for a lot of the day, as you said, the the conditions when the no wash protest yeah. started and the blanket protest and all that. What what did you do to to keep your spirits up yeah. Um, yeah. at a time like that? Well, you know, it it was twenty four seven. It wasn't a lot of day. It was all day, you know. And um, you 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 were twenty four seven. It's very. I find it hard to to even envisage that myself these days. Twenty four seven, three three and a half years, four years nearly. I was in on on the protest, and uh, you, you went to mass on Sunday. And we agreed to wear the prison trousers just to go to mass on Sunday. No boots, nothing, and one visit a month. It was we agreed to wear the uniform to go to the visits because we needed contact with the outside. We needed to get the words that you know stuff out. Um, but it was one of the noisiest places I've ever been in my life. There was all the stuff going on because. The image of normal image of prison is that uh, silence, but they they had thrown every single sanction that they had at us, so there's no way they actually control us within the cells. So even if they come up and says stop shouting, stop talking, um, there's nothing they could do. Do you know? They they we were down to the bare minimum. If you go in, that well, what a prisoner anywhere in the world is entitled to which is very, very little. And we didn't even have that. It was one hour of exercise. We didn't have that. Um, a Bible, that was it. One of the things you were talking about just before we came inside, the, the hub here, mm. was about the concerts. And I wasn't, just something I wasn't aware of. Do you mind yeah. talking a bit yeah, more in depth about yeah. the concerts inside the H-Blocks? Yeah, that guy O'Hagan, I'm an awful singer, right? I, I just can't sing. I doubt that. Yeah, I know, terrible, terrible. Um, and that guy that I was in with, I wasn't with him for long. I was moved with another guy a couple of weeks later, but he did me an awful bad turn because he says, we have a con- we always have a concert when somebody joins to celebrate, but it's a standing order that you have to sing, that he has to sing the first song. And it was a pure lie. But he just, I said, they said to me afterwards, I said, why did you do that? And he says, because people would be shy. <laughs> and um, they've all to sing. And I said, but I can't sing for nothing. And... Uh, I wrote this, there was this song doing the rounds at the time called Paddy Riley, and I think I made an effort at that. But but there would have been, like, if I once a week we'd have a sing-song, and some of the guys were brilliant singers. And you'd had sing-song out the door, somebody would have called people up, they would have sang their songs, and you'd had a blend of, uh, I suppose, protest songs, Republican songs, and the, the songs that we had been listening to before on the radio. Lion Eyes was one of the big ones when at the time by the Eagles when we went in. Um, and they were great fun. Do you know, like they were, they were they were actually great fun, but there was an awful lot of stuff went on in the evenings. You would have told stories, you would have had quizzes, um, deep, deep, deep debates. Very deep debates. Um, which is which is is a is a um feature of, of Republican prisoners. That deep debates, asking, "What are we doing here, lads? Why are we here?" Um, not to, not content to know, not to content to just accept it, but what are we doing here? Are we aware of what we're doing here? How can we move it on? And very very deep debates um, around everything, and we questioned everything, 
one one um we had a you know a formal debate one now and again where you'd have two two teams debating against each other and the very first the very first question that we did when we did a formal debate like that was um these prisoners are criminals and they're not entitled to political status mm. you know like people were ready to pull each other's heads off <laughs> it was a good job there was there was six inches of concrete between us all yeah. but um and i was on the team arguing against us having political status <laughs> and i remember at one point i said out the door and what political status would these people give the other people and the guy who was in the cell with me i had to stop him and say look it's not real. He was coming at me, like, you know. Um, but there was this stuff of dawn. And, you know, like I've always said to me, you know, you laughed and you cried as much as you did anywhere else in the world, do you yeah. know? It reminds me of, you know, we're obviously, today is 41 years since Bobby Sands started his hunger strike, but one of his more famous um, writings, he said that there's nothing in their whole imperial arsenal that can break the spirit of one Irishman who doesn't want to be broken, and that mm -hmm. certainly seems to be the experience with he. So one of the songs that you've chosen that, that was sang on those nights was um, Deportees. Deportees is, um, yeah, and I kind of found it since. I'm One of the guys, um, it was his song, and there was one night in particular I remember that Julie's crisp, icy, freezing cold nights um, where sound will I'll gather and he sang it out the window. But then we heard from guys, we were in H4, the guys in H3 and H5 made comments to people at the visits the next day. They said, we heard him singing that song last night. Yeah. And it was fantastic. And, you know, it was, and again, a political song, you know, from another part of the world, you know, where we were making a contact with other struggles and other people who were suffering, other prisoners. Yeah. So um, this is going, uh, going to be Deportees with Arlo Guthrie. The crops are all in, the beaches are rotting, the oranges are piled in their creosote dumb. They're flying you back to the Mexico border to pay all your money back again My father's own father He waited that river They took all the money He made in his life My brothers and sisters Come working the fruit trees And they rolled the trucks Till they took down and died Maria, you won't have a name when you ride the big airplane, and all they will call you will be deportees. Some of us are illegal, and others not wanted. Our work contracts out, and we have to move on. Six hundred miles to the Mexico border They chase us like outlaws Like rustlers and thieves We died in your hills And we died on your deserts We died in your valleys We died on your plains We died in your trees And we died in your bushes 
sides of the river We've died just the same Goodbye to my one Goodbye, Rosalita Adios, me amigos Jesus y Maria You won't have a name When you ride the big airplane And all they will call you Will be deportees Skyplane caught fire over Los Gatos Canyon Like a fireball of lightning Shook all our hills And who are these friends Oh, scattered like dry leaves The radio says they are just deportees Is this the best way we can grow our big orchards? This is the best way we can grow our good fruit To fold like dry leaves and to rot on your topsoil And be known by no name except devotees Goodbye to my one, goodbye Rosalita Adios, mi amigos, Jesus y Maria You won't have a name when you now, Kiran, we're discussing there in between the song about an interesting anecdote you have about the living conditions inside the H-blocks, in particular the cold you felt. Do you mind talking to us a bit more yeah. about that? Yeah, it's a strange one. Um, you see, when the new wash, when when I went into the cell, um, at first, like with the furniture, with the beds, with everything, but we really started systematically to break the whole thing up to where we were reduced to just mattresses on the floor with three blankets, a towel, and a pot to piss in. And then we broke the windows. And, we, and then we discovered that the window frames could be pushed out. So we had left ourselves no windows, nothing. Now, there was a pipe with heat in it. But that winter of 1970, it was cruel. It was really, really cruel. And there was snow, there was everything, and it was freezing. Do you know, it was really, really cold. The birds would have been flying into the cells to get in from the cold, but then they would just straight back out. My God. <laughs> back out again. But when other ones came in, and joined it afterwards. We had this. We 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 had this thing that we used to throw at them. Is uh, well, where were you in the winter of '78? <laughs> and some people still do it. You know, if you're sitting and you'll you'll come out with that. It was it, and it's built on something from the First World War in the trenches. I can't remember which one, you know, but it was a cruel winter as well. And I still, I think most of us will still remember that. There is that uh, we used to say to the guys that maybe joined in 1979 and they were complaining about something here where were you in the winter of 78 <laughs> but it was cruel now look most of the time you managed you yeah. know but that particular winter was cruel i have to say it was awful yeah because um, you know the correction is talking more of a countess rather countess rather than ever ever had spirit expression no ongoing avuna i guess a lower expression can fall um, or if role talk talk Egan Danga um, snublik Egan Anson well I suppose there's no more we we I suppose we we in the Gaelic Tabatach are a wrench 
Hushna, Evrahian, B. Arjangahin, E. August Sam, V. Rintinion, Adolum, E. You know, V. On Lilin, um, Nervi Status Politulon, as V. On the Narna Hoor, August V. Rintinion, V. Danogil Gerskal, Nirudan, be Furtafa, Aham Hosima Jafolum, the rare Hila. Near Hatchin Shishin Law, right? Rodella Hoksha Rodigan Ditch Lejano. Um, V. I point to wine and I shins Narang and Siskihan in a room, V. Bunrang, Manrang, Oxardrang, Ogin. August, um, V. Chinner Shul, Lenam Lone, Z. Bograhla, Emma, the Gam Lone, V. Kopur, Claygogget, Oz Bajor Kunawanel, Setronona. Um, Ogs Hoksha Rodigan Ditch Lejano. Um, Connishan Inchin Bia. Quick <laughs> Shinachasimeshavunyunrima <laughs> 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 <laughs>
That was Hey Jude by the Beatles on Radio Unapublicta. As mentioned at the beginning, today, 1st of March, is the 41st anniversary of the beginning of the hunger strikes of 1981. Kiran, as someone who witnessed what happened in the H-blocks, how did the no-wash protests lead into the hunger strikes in March? Yeah, um, it, it, it was, you see, you have to, the years went by, do you know? And that's the only way you can describe it. And like at the stage that I joined it, in April 1978, I think, yeah. Some of the guys were already in, in, well into their second year. Um, the guys in H5, that was the more the first established block. And said the years were going by, there was a lot of efforts made to resolve it. Um, Cardinal O'Feach, um, during about 1980, 
had a long series of talks with the Secretary of State and seemed to be getting somewhere. Um, the the five demands were brought around. There was a massive there was, there was a massive campaign going on to end it, and um, the 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 but time was going on and it was it was quite brutal. You know, there was a lot of kickings being given out. I remember that Hey Jude is is we had the Shackton done. It was they fo- they focused on one wing. It was unfortunately it was my wing one week and just went at us. Um, and I remember one of the guys sang Hey Jude. There was a moment there when all the heads were down, and the guy sang started singing Hey Jude out the win- out the door, and the whole wing joined in. And that's for every time I hear the song, I remember that, and it lifted the spirits. And it's why Hey Jude is, you know, it's, it's always associated in my head with that time. But, you know, the guys were getting towards five years. I was four years on the protest, you know, by the time we got our clothes back. And the the, the various efforts to resolve it, both with us and with our ma, had failed. And it was decided then to go on the hunger strike and it was this was the first hunger strike in towards the end of 1980 and um the guys all went on it together seven guys went on it together and it ended in a lot of confusion that there was a document there from the british government that they reneged on they, they the idea of giving us our clothes it turned out that it was civilian type clothes but they would supply them and it was just the whole thing ended in um it, it it ended a lot of confusion but the first hunger strike had had the full support of every, of the whole republican movement and everybody outside because they knew so really by christmas this was starting to sink into us that uh no this we hadn't we hadn't got our demands and the british were say, the british they reckoned that the hunger strike had ended um, and it's difficult to know. So it was just ended in confusion and it started to be talking about having a second hunger strike. And this was shock. This was a massive shock, particularly outside. And that Bobby had decided, right, but he said, I'm going on two weeks ahead of everybody. And then we'll do it staggered. We'll only have four men on at any one stage and they'll be replaced because we knew somebody was going to die. And, you know, there's an awful lot said about that, about that in between the two hunger strikes. It was an awful time, so it was. Because we knew, you know, there was a lot of efforts to try, we were made to resolve it, but we knew it wasn't going to happen. You know, because if it had been dealing with anybody but Margaret Thatcher, possibly, but she wanted her pound of flesh for her and Eve. And the, 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 a lot of, in some of the stuff that's said about it, you know, there's accusations made towards the Republican movement on the outside that they bound those young men up to do everything. And I can tell you, everything from the outside came in and said, no, lads, you're not doing that. You're not going on the second hunger strike. Find an internal solution within the prison, but you cannot go on a second hunger strike. And we had statements read out from the Army Council we can't, or they, and it's a, it's, it's a principle within republicanism that you cannot order somebody to go on the hunger strike. That's mad. But the way, and I, the way it was put, it said by the same token, we cannot order anybody not to. But we are telling you, we do not want this. 
and Sinn Féin were, we do not want this. The whole Republican movement, relatives, everybody was saying, lads, you can't do this. You can't do this. Um, and the guys, we insisted, no, because we were at the end of our tether. Do you know, we were really at the end of our tether. This protest had been going on. And I know it was fine to talk about an internal solution within the prison, but we weren't going to lose. You know, we had invested too much into this. Like, by the time I should have been out, do you know, by that stage, I got eight years. I should have only done four years. Ended up, I did six. But I should have been really on my way out. I should have been out of there in 1981. And we had all lost, by this stage, I had lost all the remission and I was due to do eight years. And other guys were the same. You know what I mean? We had invested a lot in this. And um, we weren't going, we just, we, we weren't going to give in. We weren't going to lose. And the, this is where the lie is. You know, when people say that, you know, that it was right up from the outside. Well, we, the pressure that came on from the outside, from Irish American everywhere, don't, you're not serious thinking about doing this because people will die. They said normally, and, and the statement that was sent in, they said normally you go into this and you think this is going to be Brinksman's ship and it can go one way or the other. But they're saying at least one person's going to die. Nobody imagined 10 would die. But they said at least one, and it was only at the 11th hour, a really... And the, 20, the, the, the night before that another statement came in and says, well, and I remember it started, well, you're obviously determined to go ahead with this. So, of course, we will be supporting you. But it started with that, you're obviously determined to go ahead with this. So we will be supporting you. And it's always very important to get that message out because at the time, and especially since then, it, there, there's this thing that's created. And I've heard it said, oh, yeah, those young men were taking advantage of and no, no, this was driven. And I remember the prison chaplain just before Mickey Devine dead, died, he came in and he had been with Tom when Tom died. And he said at the us in mass, he said, it's only dawned on me that you guys are driving this up until now. He was very anti-Republican, but he says, up until now, he says, I thought you were victims. He says, but I've just realised it is actually you that's doing this and I'm appealing to you to stop. And no, it wasn't going to, it just it wasn't going to happen, do you know? And so part of the confusion when um, the first hunger strike ended, we were still on the no wash protest and it created a lot of confusion. Um, so one of the decisions that was made as we hit the 1st of March was that the no wash protest ended. And this, it, 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 it made a very strange, it makes a very strange memory because on the one hand, First hunger strike, the second hunger strike was starting. Bobby was going on. But this, the prison had cooperated with us and says, OK, end it. We'll cooperate with you. We'll put, you know, we'll, we'll get new blocks ready with furniture in them, get the stuff in for you to get shard. They made concessions in that we were allowed to get reading material in, but previous to this, we were only allowed Bibles. And uh, we were allowed to get reading material in for the first time. Um, newspapers and books, we no radios, right? And an extra visit a week, an extra visit a month. So we had two visits a month and they stopped the mirror search, which I think is evidence, you see, they said the mirror search was for security reasons, but I think, you know, it was just pure torture. The mirror search was sexual torture. And that's what I think, and it's only recently that I think any of us have begun to say this, you know, that we were tortured psychologically, physically, but that we were also tortured. Say we were sexually assaulted. The mirror search was gross. It was a sexual assault, and this sometimes three times a day. And they stopped the mirror search, which is proof that 
yes, that was punitive. Because when, you know, when we stopped the No Wash protest, they stopped the mirror search, which means, yeah, that was punitive. If, if for anything, during the hunger strike itself, there was more reason for this extra security because we had more visits with everything, you know. But um, they did, they stopped the mirror search. And so on one level, life got a bit better. Do you know you were allowed to write letters out and get letters and life kind of chilled a bit. You were going, you had to go out, you went out every day for your shower, you started shaving, getting haircuts. But on the other level, we knew, you know, the, the, the first weeks of a hunger strike are, you know, you, 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 not, nothing, it takes a while before it starts to bite, you know. And uh, so you knew that um, bad times were coming. So you did, but it was a good decision to end in the wash protest because it it was it was almost as if and probably was that you know, between us and the British government, we said, look, let's not muddy the water. This is going to be down to one thing. And it's only going to end it's only going to end one way. Um, either you give us the demands or people will be dying. Now at the beginning, somebody else says, you know, ten men are going to be dead here. You would not have said, you would have said, no, 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 that'll not go to that, but it did and could have gone beyond. Um, there was, there was one, at one point that, um, when Joe McDonnell was coming near the danger zone, you know, that, uh, there was a gain, there was a massive effort to resolve it and it was almost resolved. But what happened was that Joe deteriorated very, very quickly. And, and then the British stood back because there was nobody else in immediate danger. So the British stood back and says, OK, let's just let this play out over the summer. And uh, so it just, as I said, it just went from bad to worse. And it, it was like Joe, Joe's brother, by the way, was in the cell next to me. And that's how we knew Joe had died, that we heard the door opening at the, in, the, in the morning and it closing. And I realised Frankie, myself and the guy that was in the cell was, I says, look, I said, do you hear that? And he said, yeah. I said, Joe must be gone. And we could hear him, the two of them talking in the cell quietly and everybody was sitting. And then the, the guy in the cell with him, a guy called John Goff, called the, me up to up the window and says, listen, um, would you tell the rest of the lads that Joe's gone? And we just put it out the door. And uh, it was always a very somber moment, you know? We had the radio there, but I remember again, the always nickname, when we were shouting it in, in Irish, so that screws didn't know. See, we couldn't let the screws knew that we were getting the news. Do you know what I mean? Because then they'd know we had a radio smuggled in. So Bobby would say rhubarb. And I remember um, that, that, that morning, then the guy shouted for rhubarb boss. And we knew, God, this is going, this is, this is, this is getting seriously now. And uh, yeah, that, um, so, but as I said, it came to an end. Um, as things do, as things always do, um, maybe not the end that we would have liked it to have come to, but we got our clothes. We got half of our demands. We got our own clothes and getting our own clothes got us out of the cells. And what that did, there was so many of us, that gives the part really over the next year or two to get the rest of the demands, to put the prison in a position where it couldn't function without giving us the rest of the demands. The escape actually was the one that did away with the prison work that once they skipped, because they, they knew, keep them just in their blocks, don't let them see what the outside of the, the, outside of the blocks looks like, um, and there'd be no more skips. And, you know, I got out then, 
in autumn, I went in autumn 1977, I came home autumn 83, and I went back to school, you know. I had promised myself that, that I'd go back to school, and it was a good decision, do you know? It was a good decision, and it was some, something that a lot of us did. I was in the department, the Irish department in Coleraine, then, and Tom McElwee's brother, Benedict, who had been in the cell next to me, was we shared a house. And there were quite a few ex-prisoners in that department. At one stage, we wanted to go to Belgium. And the head of the department said, uh, can you two go and get a book, get, get us a way to go? And so we found to go to the land bridge, you know, take the ferry over. And we started explaining it to him. And he, he put his head in his hands and says, he, did, he says, for God's sake, he said, half the department will be arrested as soon as we land in Stranraer. And he says, you two Egypts will be the first two. <laughs> um, so, like, it's, yeah. But as it says, it, it ended, move forward, but you carry it with you all your life. Yeah. And, like, you, you know, our generation, um, we can read about this and we can watch it on the TV and we can, um, you know, do all those things. But when you actually hear it, uh, first hand, it becomes very real. And it's not that long ago, no. you know, I heard someone say recently that if Bobby Sands and the others were alive today they'd be in their mid-60s like yeah, you know yeah, yeah. like yourself so yeah. um, it's really not that long ago um, we said we'd uh, play one last song and then um, we'll say it's long before after that this is I think it's um, probably one of the definitive songs anyway of this whole period it's it, um, it encapsulates a lot of Ireland's colonial experience throughout the centuries, but particularly um, during this time. This was written by Francie Brawley. It's the H-Block song and sang by Terry O'Neill. Sorry. I am the proud young Irish man in Ulster the happy boy The green fields run And I kept on On man's farm But when my age was burning Ten by country's rose Were told again by the tens of thousands then my heart stirred to their cause. So I wear no country's uniform, nor neatly serve my time. I pretend my Nurture 
So, um, Kronchishin Kriuk, Le Clarin Leonov, that was um, Terry O'Neill singing the H Block song. Uh, very powerful lines there. So, I'll wear no convict's uniform, nor meekly serve my time, that Britain might brand Ireland's fight 800 years of crime. So, Gurmila Mahagut, Kiranas Taktis Lakhanov, Agus Lartling. Gurmahagut, Ian, and you know, for myself, and I think for all of our guys, to have the, a young generation 
we still come and talk to us about yeah. it is is we we owe you a debt. We, we're grateful to you too. Mm-hmm. Might be forty year, forty one years on now, but it's still um, happening. It's still happening. Closer than ever. So Bigilinga reached on Varch Cooing on a Dogadina Street Club La Radio on a Publicta.